Hi everyone, welcome to Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Mathis Grandchamp and myself, Loïc Meunier. We both pursue a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cementov Development LTD, and Red Bull. Dr. David Kelly is the Chief Global Strategist and Head of Global Market Insights Strategy Team for JP Morgan Asset Management. With over 20 years of experience, David provides valuable insight and perspective on the economy and markets to the institutional investor and financial advisor global communities. He is also a keynote speaker at many national investment conferences and a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and other financial media outlets. Prior to joining JP Morgan Asset Management, David served as economic advisor to Putnam Investments. He also served as senior strategist at SPP Investment Management, Primark Decision Economics, and Lehman Brothers. David is a CFA charter holder. He also has a PhD and a master's in economics from the Michigan State University and a bachelor's in economics from University College Dublin in the Republic of Ireland. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. David Kelly. Hi, Dr. Kelly. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear... I'd love to hear about your background and history on how you ended up as chief global strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. Well, I so I started out uh, in Ireland. I uh, I actually was uh, kind of interested in politics in Ireland. Uh, my father was a politician, and so that's what I wanted to do. But I figured I wouldn't be any good as a politician unless I understood a little bit about the economy. Uh, so I went. So I started studying economics in undergraduate, and then I got sort of hooked in the economics. So I, so I went over to graduate school in Michigan State. I met a girl from Grand Rapids, Michigan. We got married and we moved to Massachusetts. And I've really been an economist and a strategist ever since. Um, and so over the years, I, I you know, I've really focused on the economy. But one of the things I found as, uh, as a student of the economy and somebody who finds economics really interesting is nobody's going to pay you just to talk about the economy. There has to actually be a point. And so for me, the point has been, well, what does the economy mean for, uh, for profits? What does it mean for interest rates? And what does it mean for investing? And so really, I focus my career on uh, on talking about the implications of an evolving economic environment for investors. Great. Uh, and just going back to your days at MSU, I'm curious to know, what was your PhD thesis about? Oh, I actually put together a revenue forecasting model for the state of Michigan. I was uh, I was trying to sort of pay my way through college. My, my first attempt at a thesis uh, was a mathematical mess. It was a big aggregate um, or general equilibrium model, which was just a little bit too complicated for uh, my mathematical skills. So I, I, I decided to, to ditch that and I wrote a dissertation instead on trying to use short-term or high-frequency econometric models to forecast revenues for the state of Michigan. And that was very interesting. I mean, it was fun doing it, but also I think I learned a lot about the forecasting business um, when, as I was putting together my thesis. So I think it was it was quite useful from that perspective. And then at the beginning of your career at JP Morgan, you went through the financial crisis and JP Morgan navigated the crisis relatively better than some other institutions. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think one of the things that uh, JP Morgan has prided itself on uh, for many decades is having the strongest balance sheet in, among the major, um, major banks in Wall Street. And I think that certainly was something that our CEO Jamie Dimon had has always really highlighted uh, what he calls our fortress balance sheet, and that's been the, the the thing that he has nurtured the most. And what that meant was that going into the financial crisis, we'd in many cases turned down a lot of the opportunities 
that other banks had embraced. And maybe our profits didn't grow as fast in the years going up to the financial crisis, but it also meant that we were less exposed when the financial crisis hit. And we certainly had less leverage than many other of our competitors at that time. You also acquired Bear Stearns in 2008. Did you personally witness any challenge following the acquisition? Well, yes. I mean, I wasn't involved in the deal making itself. It was a very hectic time. Um, you know, it's, it, as I said, J- Jamie Diamond talked about it as, you know, it's it's one thing to buy your neighbor's house. It's another thing to buy your neighbor's house when it's actually on fire, uh, which is kind of what was going on. So um, it wasn't clear whether Bear Stearns was worth anything at all at the time. Um, and so it was sold at a very deep discount for, you know, relative to what it would have been worth six months or 12 months earlier. Um, but nevertheless, I, you know, I think that that is not clear whether JP Morgan ever made any money on this because uh, what happened was a lot of the problems that Bear Stearns had uh, sort of built for itself over the years leading up to the acquisition by JP Morgan, um, they sort of survived afterwards. And although the government had, had asked JP Morgan to acquire Bear Stearns uh, and indicated that, uh, and I, I have to be careful in how I say this, but I believe there was an indication that they would not uh, be overly vigilant in trying to uh, um, uh, you know, leave uh, or deal with the, leave JP Morgan responsible for many of the problems that Bear Stearns had created. In the end, uh, we saw a lot of uh, litigation around Bear Stearns' um, old legacy problems. So overall, it's sort of, I think it, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a mixed, um, I'm not sure that it actually helped uh, JP Morgan at all, but it did, I think, help the economy. Uh, I think it was important at the time, both with Bear Stearns, well, really with Bear Stearns at that time, I think it proved that it was important to have a big, powerful bank that was willing to take over a competitor that was in trouble. And of course, you know, uh, six months later, when Lehman Brothers went down, um, the uh, the real problem was that we ran out of healthy banks to buy other banks, uh, and that really precipitated the great financial crisis. So it's, uh, you know, the uh, it's I don't know that that's a story that's really told properly, but I think it's important not to be revisionist when it comes to history. That's really what happened. Mm-hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do as chief global strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management? Yeah, I, I have a very fun job. I, I run a team of about 30 strategists and analysts around the world. Um, about half of them, just over half of them are strategists and the rest are analysts. Um, we've got a team in New York, we've got a team in London and uh, strategists around Europe. We've got a team in Hong Kong and strategists around Asia. And what we try to do is look at the economic and financial environment um, and uh, look at its implications for how people should invest, both in the long run and in the medium term, but also really try to convey that to investors of all levels of sophistication with as much clarity as possible. Uh, We think there's an enormous vacuum in Wall Street. There are a lot of very clever people who either can't or won't communicate clearly um, on financial markets. I think it leaves the general public absolutely fogged as to what's going on in Wall Street or how to make money in Wall Street. Uh, And so what we try to do is just cut through the clutter and be as clear as possible in talking about uh, what's going on in the economy, um, what that means for interest rates and earnings, and what that therefore means for various kinds of investments. And how does your approach differ serving as, as chief strategist in asset management specifically compared to a role encompassing all aspects of JP Morgan? 
Well, it, it would be a horrendously big job if I had to do all, all aspects of JP Morgan. Um, I think it's actually, I think though the level of expertise or the, or the area of expertise is quite similar. I mean, if you were, uh, you know, the, the chief economist uh, in the investment bank uh, certainly has far more resources in terms of, you know, with which to study the global economy. Uh, there are strategists in our investment bank um, also, uh, and they tend to focus a lot more on near-term strategy. We're, we, sp we really think a lot about the individual investor. Um, and the individual investor needs to be able to have a long-term strategy towards investing. We don't really want them to, to try to be trading markets. So we tend to be a little longer term focused. But I would say that the, that the job is not very different from the job of uh, chief economists at the investment bank or, or chief strategists in the investment bank. Um, we're all essentially looking at the economy and markets. The one other thing I would say is that um, it's, all, it's a very busy job, all of it. Um, and so there, there's no way that any one person would have the time to service all the clients that they would have to service if they were uh, chief economists and strategists for the entire organization. Just couldn't be done. And you mentioned that um, you are transparent toward your, your, your clients and, 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 um, and so on. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Global Market Insights, which I think you run? Yeah, so so what we do is we, we run the global I run the global market insights team, and so as I said, it's it's strategists and analysts around the world, but we also produce something, and it really sprung out of the fact that we produce something called the guide to the markets. So in the United States, we produce a guide to the markets, which is a way of helping U.S. investors understand what's going on in the economy and markets. But we also produce a European guide to the markets, an Asian guide to the markets, and then some specific country ones. Um, in Japan, Australia, um, in the UK, um, and then we've got a LATAM one. And then we've got other guides. We've, we've got a guide to alternatives. Uh, I think in alternative investing is very opaque for a lot of people. So we've also got a guide to China to try to explain the Chinese economy and uh, financial markets to non-Chinese people. And we have a Chinese guide to the markets, which is designed to help Chinese investors invest. So uh, we've got a lot of publications um, with this uh, of a similar vein, but what we're we're all trying to do is for institutional investors, uh, for financial advisors, and for some individual investors, we're just trying to help them understand what they need to understand about the world in order to make better investment decisions. And before moving on to the market segment, I'd like to touch on your work-life balance. How is your current work-life balance, and how did it evolve through the course of your career? Well, it's pretty good. Uh, I think uh, you have to fight like crazy for it, uh, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully, you 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 will end up in a, a sort of job where you do have to do that. Do that. I could easily fill ten times my my day with things that that people ask me to do, uh, but I have to say no to a lot of stuff, um, and I have to delegate like crazy in order to to be able to get things done. Uh, but I think balance is is terribly important. So I, you know, I I you know. I'm, Talking to you from home here, I work from home uh, a lot of the time, probably most of the time. Uh, I do travel around the world and travel particularly around the United States, uh, but I also do a lot of running. I've uh, I've run uh, eight marathons now in the last uh, eight years, so uh, so it's uh, that's kind of my hobby. Well, uh, pretty impressive. And moving on to the market segment, uh, David, what are your thoughts or, or perspectives on the direction of interest rates? Well, I think uh, where we are uh, as we're recording this, we, we just got the employment report uh, for the month of November. 
Uh, and it showed the unemployment rate coming down to 3.7%. That is the 24th consecutive month in which the unemployment rate in the United States has been below 4%. But the interesting thing is that wage growth is actually still decelerating. Um, this doesn't, it's a full employment economy, but it doesn't seem to be causing um, wage inflation. And if you look at inflation overall in the United States, it peaked in June of 2022 uh, at 9.1%. It's uh, next week we're going to get some numbers. They should be at about 3% or maybe even below that on a year-over-year -year basis. So it's, most of the inflation problem has gone away. Now, that's very important for interest rates. Uh, we believe the Federal Reserve, if they meet next week, they're probably done tightening. We don't expect them to raise rates next week. But I think the strength of the economy will tell them they can take their time in terms of easing. And so I don't expect them to ease, certainly in early 2024, and, you know, provided the economy keeps growing, they may not ease until the middle of the year or maybe even the second half of the year. So I think you'll get a, we'll get a few token rate cuts in the next year to 18 months, uh, you know, maybe two or three rate cuts next year of one quarter of a percent per cut. So maybe taking the, the federal funds rate down by about 0.75% from where it is right now. But this is still very a very slow decline in rates relative the speed at which they ramped up rates. And so I think the Federal Reserve will probably keep short-term interest rates relatively high. That only brings them down very slowly for as long as the economy is growing. And I think that does limit how much long-term interest rates can come down because, of course, every time you decide you're going to invest in a long-term bond and you're making less than you're making on a short-term uh, uh, treasury bill, um, you're you're losing some income. And so the question is, how much of a capital gain do you expect to make? So I think the Federal Reserve, by being slow to bring down short-term rates, will limit the decline in long-term interest rates. Eventually, we have a recession, and then rates will come down. And I do think that the, the general direction of rates is probably down from here rather than up. Um, but until we have a recession, I think it's going to be slow going in terms of getting any significant declines in interest rates, either the short end or the long end from here. Mm. Uh, th thank you for that. And if you were to sit in the Oval Office, or if you could provide a single recommendation for, for shaping future economic policies uh, in the US, what direction of strategy would you would you propose to support to support the growth again in the US? I mean, comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, one of the big problems with the United States right now is there is so much political angst about um, immigration. Uh, there's a limit. There's a, a lack of skilled workers in many areas. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of illegal immigration or people coming in seeking asylum who don't have work permits and maybe don't have the skills that the economy needs. But the population aged 18 to 64 in the United States is only growing by one tenth of one percent per year. It's growing very, very slowly. So it makes sense from an economic perspective for both parties to just bury the hatchet on immigration and for once for once do something for the public good, which would be a comprehensive immigration reform bill, which would both seal the borders and uh, prevent employers from employing illegal immigrants, uh, but at the same time, uh, widen the uh, uh, the net of, or increase the, the number of legal immigrants coming into this country and the number of people and give people a pathway to become legal immigrants um, so that we can deal with our employment needs. Uh, right now, we're at full employment. As I said, the population age 18 to 64 is growing very slowly, and that will limit GDP growth to about 2% going forward. Um, if we had comprehensive immigration reform, we could add 
half percent or maybe even a full percent to that number. And earlier we touched on increasing uh, rates in the U.S. What are your thoughts on commercial real estate considering the recent increase in rates and the growing popularity of remote work? Because it seems that office occupancy may not return to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. I think I think that's right. Uh, I think the uh, of course in real estate uh, it's very important to have the best building. So what we're seeing is a, a wide divergence between interest in leasing the best buildings in center cities um, and some of the older the older stock of buildings. I think there will be some pretty significant vacancies and some pretty significant further discounts in the price of older buildings um, in uh, cities. Uh, but I think that we'll see um, we'll see, still see good demand for high you know for the highest quality buildings. I think a lot of businesses, a lot of uh, um, a lot of major corporations really do want everybody back at work and it's it's really a matter of motivation. Um, if everybody's working in the same place, uh, they can collaborate to some extent, but they also um, have an interest in working um, very hard for the company. And I think the uh, you know the longer remote work goes, I mean, I personally have never had a problem working remotely. I feel just as motivated at home as I feel in the office, but I don't think that's common. And I think there are a lot of people who will sort of tend to lose interest or slack off and work if they work from home permanently. And so I think businesses want to try to get people back to work, but it's it's going to be very difficult. The economics don't really favor it. Um, and so I think there's going to be a problem with vacancies in 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 the office space, as I say, on older buildings. Um, is that enough to sink commercial real estate overall? No. I mean, there, there are other parts of real estate. The office sector is going to be difficult. Um, I think parts of retail are going to be difficult, but things like um, warehouses, uh, data centers, uh, multifamily housing. I think there are other areas of commercial real estate which could do quite well. And I'd like to get your thoughts on converting office space into residential space. Yeah, I, the problem is it's not very suitable for it. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the office space is in downtown areas. Um, you know, they're they're. Uh, I mean, if you think about think about the layout of a typical office and think about what you want as a layout of a typical home. It's really not the same thing, and it's extremely expensive to convert. Um, you know, you have to. You know, do you have good plumbing facilities? Do you have good cooking facilities? Uh, do you have, uh, um, you know, you know, cozy bedrooms? Do you have nice views? Do you have plenty of light, uh, which is not neon light? These are quite different buildings, and it's a. You know, it is very expensive to do that. So there are some conversions going on. Uh, I think. Uh, I think in you know, I think people are endlessly inventive in the way they use space. So, for example, in in retail malls, um, I think there's a a lot of shops are closing, but a lot of services are opening up as a way to fill that space. So there are there is some adaptation, but I think there's a limit to how much we're going to want to convert office space into um, housing for uh, uh, you know for normal families. Now, I suppose you know if I was a teenager in New York and somebody said, "Hey, you can you can." Uh, sleep in the, in the 33rd floor of this office building and it'll all be set up for you. I might say, well, it's great. Nice to have a place in, in downtown New York. But no, it isn't exactly a place to raise kids. Yeah, I get your point. Uh, now, looking into the S&P 500 companies reporting, it seems like there's a problem with revenues, but margins are remaining strong. Mm -hmm. Factors such as declining revenue, increasing wages and higher interest rates and slower revenue growth are expected to exert pressure on margins. Uh, what factors do you believe contribute to the resilience of these margins? 
Well, I think what's happened is that businesses have been pretty good at beating back the workers who want a pay increase. So we've, you know, the wage data suggests that uh, wage growth has actually been slowing uh, for almost two years now, uh, despite the fact we've been at full employment. Uh, for so that's one thing that's that's helped margins. A second thing is yes, interest costs are rising, but particularly for larger companies, uh, they issued bonds over the course of the um, last few years and in the pandemic, um, and they you know it's kind of like homeowners taking out a thirty-year fixed rate mortgage. They were uh, very aggressive in borrowing whatever they needed over that period of time, and uh, and we look forward into into you know over the next few years about you know in there's no year in the next uh five or six years where more than 10 percent of the corporate debt in this country comes due um so we we still uh, so this uh, uh most companies have refinanced away that problem so uh eventually they could get caught with it, but on the other hand eventually the federal reserve will cut, cut rates and they can they can then borrow money more cheaply again um we've seen in terms of input costs um, we have seen a reversion uh, of uh, food and energy prices back to uh, the sort of pre-Ukraine peaks and maybe in some cases pre-pandemic peaks. Um, so a lot of input costs are going going down also. A lot of supply chain issues have been dealt with. Uh, but also, you know, I just think that American firms are actually pretty good at managing margins. I mean, they, they, they uh, work very hard to maintain that gap uh, between revenues and costs. And I think that's what we see in, in uh, the fact that 80% of companies in the third quarter earnings season actually beat estimates for, for, uh, for earnings, despite the fact that only about 50% beat estimates for, for revenues. And that tells me they're pretty good at holding costs in place. Mm. Super, super interesting. Thank you for that. And before we wrap up our discussion on markets, let's just explore one more thing. What trends and practice areas are you most excited for looking forward to 2024 and, and even beyond? Well, I think I think one one clear, clearly interesting area is uh, artificial intelligence. And I know there's a lot of money has gone in there. I think we have to be very careful as investors not to overpay for companies who may not be able to maintain a dominant position in this space, whether it be in the artificial intelligence itself or the chips that are, that are building it or the companies that will be able to use it to enhance productivity. Uh, but there are obviously multiple, multiple uses for artificial intelligence. It's a far bigger deal, in my opinion, than, for example, blockchain technology, which lies, which is used by cryptocurrencies. I think that that's all basically a, a, a shell game. I think crypto is nonsense, uh, but but AI is not nonsense, um, and I think it it will lead to productivity enhancement in the years ahead. So I think I think that's that's by far the most interesting space right now. Great and. Now moving on to the mentorship guidance segment, what qualities do you believe are essential for effective leadership in finance and how can someone develop these qualities? Um, first, be a good person. You know, it's, uh, I, I think Wall Street gets a terrible rap for being full of greedy people who only care about money. I haven't met those people. And I've been, you know, I've been around people on Wall Street uh, my entire career. M most people are good people, uh, they're thoughtful people, they're very ethical people, uh, they're actually fun people to be around. And some of them are a little nerdy, I'll admit that. Uh, but 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 uh, but I think the uh, I think the first thing is you got to be a good person. Um, it's I remember seeing a speech recently, I think it was a commencement address, I've forgotten exactly who, who gave it. Uh, but uh, I remember one line in which this guy said, 
you know, being being kind, being considerate, being thoughtful, actually sort of goes against our animal instincts. It is something that that distinguishes humans from uh, lower forms of evolution. And, and so, in in his from his perspective, a sign of great intelligence is when somebody's actually kind to other people. Uh, and very often he's, he's found that the kindest person in the room also actually tends to be the smartest. But I think that's true in business in general. Um, don't, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're well thought of as a, as a good person, um, things move up and down and are all around in, in, in business and uh, what goes around comes around. And so I think it's very important to be good and ethical. Um, what else? I think you have to, you have to get over yourself. Um, you, you need a certain degree of humility and humility doesn't imply cowardice. Uh, humility just you know is the instinct to know that if you've if you've been heading down the wrong path for for a while or you've made a few mistakes and you just own up to it and go the other direction the worst thing you can do is follow your own mistakes over the cliff which many people do um i think you have to i think you have to be a lateral thinker i think it's not just about numbers it's about being able to communicate um what those numbers mean uh, in writing, in words. Um, I think that, that the ability to articulate ideas in finance, you know, that the attempt at articulating ideas often will tell you whether an idea is actually correct or whether there's some flaw in it, because the surest way to find a flaw in something is to try to explain to somebody. And if you can't explain it, then there probably is a flaw. So I think those are some of the things I think I would focus on being kind, uh, being flexible, getting over yourself and not being, you know, not being too dogmatic in what you do. Um, and, and then trying to communicate what you're, what you're trying to do as clearly as possible. Thank you. Thank you for those advice. And how should students go about finding an internship? Ah, that's very difficult. Um, I don't know. Well, the one thing I can tell, you know, is the funny thing is when people ask me, you know, can I kind of find them a job or do I know of a job? you know, most of the time I don't, but if I have an opening, then, you know, hey, apply away, you know, send it over, over your resume. Your resume floats at the top of the pile. Yeah, that That's good. Um, when it comes to internships, though, um, the our company, like I think most companies in Wall Street, has a very good internship program. Um, I think it produces a wonderful crop of interns. And then they, uh, you know, many of those people end up working for us as research analysts and then uh, moving up the, the the food chain to associates and vice presidents over the years. So I think that all works very well. Uh, but I don't know any back way around getting in there. Um, I think you have to you have to have a superb resume. I think uh, I think you have to have a very high GPA. I think you have to have great scores on lots of things. I think you need to be able to uh, again present yourself really well. Uh, I mean, I, the, if you, and if you do all of that, um, you still may not get every internship you, you want, but if you take enough shots at basket, you know, eventually something will fall. So I think the, I think the key is have a resume that will naturally float to the top of the pile. Um, and, and then just send out enough of them and, uh, then you'll, uh, then you'll get to get where you want to get, get to, but don't be discouraged. You know, I mean, very, very often people, you know, I, I, over my career, um, there'd be plenty of time people have said no to me and it has been discouraging at the time, but you know, you just, uh, dust yourself off. And you go right back at it. Oddly enough, uh, when I joined J.P. Morgan in 2008, I think nobody at J.P. Morgan was aware of the fact that I'd actually applied to work for them twice before, and in both cases been turned down. But it was a different group, and uh, and uh, they they needed what I had at the time. 
So, uh, you know, don't give up. So what would be an advice that you would give to someone starting uh, in the financial industry or just out of university? Uh, focus on the communication side of things. I think there's uh, most people who go into this business have got very strong quantitative skills. And hopefully they've got a strong e-com background. They've got a strong understanding of a natural understanding of how things are connected, how things work, a, a good ability to, uh, to sort of uh, model the world, so to speak. But what most people lack is an ability to communicate. Uh, I will tell you that I see these absolutely beautiful resumes, just stunning resumes, much better than mine was ever was. And then I asked him to write 250 words on this morning's employment report, and he wouldn't believe how bad it is. The grammar is wrong, the spelling's wrong, the intuition's wrong, the structure is wrong. Um, it's there. People are not good writers, and I know it's an old-fashioned thing, but I think this is getting worse because we've got a generation of people who basically text. If, if anything, um, and it's really important to work on writing skills, get it right, you know, and to be a good writer, you've got to be a good reader. You know, one of my favorite questions when I when I uh, interview somebody is who's your favorite, favorite author? I absolutely don't care who their favorite author is. I just want to know that they have one. Um, and very often it just completely flummoxes them because they don't actually read nonfiction at all. Or if they do, they tell me, oh, well, the J.K. Rawlings. I'm nothing against J.K. Rawlings or like J.K. Rawlings, but I kind of hope that people have read more than just Harry Potter in the course of their uh, in the course of their teenage years. And moving on, moving on to the rapid fire questions, uh, what is the piece, uh, the best piece of advice that anyone has give, ever given you? Um, I think the most valuable single piece of advice actually was given to me by somebody when I was. Uh, doing my dissertation, and I think I told you my first one blew up, but the uh, but the but this person said, look, your dissertation is not your life's work. It's simply a way to get the degree, get the degree. He was absolutely right. I mean, I've, you know, my, my dissertation, like every dissertation out there, gathers dust. It's not, the, you know, it's not, it's not the, your dissertation is not gonna change the world, but you need just need to get it done. That was actually probably the single most valuable piece of advice. I think the most important piece of advice which I could give that I have sometimes taken and I sometimes received, but I'm not consistent on it, is if you're not sure whether you should knock on a door or not, or what people are going to think of me, or, you know, what do they say? No, just knock on the door. Most, pe most people, will, most people will, will try to help you out. Most people in this world are good. Um, a lot of people, you know, do I have a re you know, what, what gives me the right to, to call somebody up or ask them, you know, for, for a favor. I mean, you guys reached out to me and asked me, you know, could I spend some time in a, on a Friday afternoon doing a podcast? You don't know me from Adam. I could easily have blown it off, but I didn't. Um, and generally knock on doors. You know, you don't know what, what's behind the right door. So, so the more life is, is very random. It's a, and it's a very evolutionary process and it's not all planned at all. Um, but if that's the case, if there's a lot of random chance, give yourself many chances, roll the dice many times. That's how I think you, how you get lucky. You, you make your luck by simply by taking enough reasonable chances. The other thing I would say is um, I don't believe that you can achieve anything you want. I think you can achieve most things you want with the appropriate skills and work. So you can achieve a lot, but I, I don't believe that people sort of dream themselves into, uh, into a 4.0. They've actually got to put the work in uh, and then they can get there. And so um, I think we have to be realistic about what we can achieve. Uh, but I do think people have got tremendous potential uh, if they put their minds to something and focus on it.
I want to touch on that on a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? Uh, I'd give it about an eight or a nine. I really think it's important because I mean, I think that I think standardized tests are good also, but the problem is that an employer is going to read a certain amount of verbiage from everybody, but they will gravitate to the, to the quantitative, which allows them sort out the resumes. So if your GPA, if you're good, 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 good university and you are, you could, you could look at a GPA or you could look at a percentile ranking is also a good way to do it, probably better. Uh, but if you can sh provide some quantitative as evidence that you are the smart smartest in your class, that you are the smartest among your peers or close to the smartest among your peers, that says something a lot. And that, I think, does help resumes float to the top much more than how you try to frame something. People don't really read the framing uh, when they're looking at 70 or 100 resumes. They, they tend to focus on numbers. And what part of your day do you look forward to the most? Um, every day is different. Uh, so I, I, I love, you know, I love running. So I, I, uh, I managed to put in a run in the middle of the afternoon or just, just before I did this here. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I tend to be an early writer. I, I get up very early. I get up about five and I start, uh, usually I start writing and that's, uh, that's my fun kind of the time of the day. Um, I can get a lot of stuff done before the phone starts ringing or more, more to the point before I get deluged by emails. Um, so, uh, but it's, uh, every day is different in this job. It's fun. And if you wouldn't be in the financial industry, what would you be doing instead? Uh, I would love to be a microbiologist. I think, uh, I think, uh, I think the more you learn about um, nature and about the human body, but about uh, really animals in general and the incredible complexity uh, that, that lies beneath all of us, it's, it's just mind blowing and fascinating. And uh, I would, uh, I could, uh, I could study that forever. And to end our session, what is one book you would recommend to our listeners? Um, Tale of Two Cities. Uh, I think that's one of my favorite books. Um, I, 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 I admit I'm antiquated, but I, I love uh, 19th century literature because that was a time when people had thousands and thousands of words at their command. And they knew how to use them. And that's how they communicated with each other. They would write long letters to each other and they, they would communicate in words. And the, the, there's something lovely about the way words interact with the human mind, uh, because it, when, you, when you write, you, you come up with all sorts of ideas, all sorts of connections, all sorts of ways of, of, of inventing a picture of the world. Um, and so when, it, when you read a good author, um, I, you know, I, I love Dickens, but uh, I, love, I love lots of other 19th century authors also. Uh, but I think uh, Tale of Two Cities is a particularly well-written book because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great in terms of atmospherics. Um, I kind of like history anyway, uh, but also the, there are various threads to the story which are woven together so nicely during the, uh, the book that has sort of come together at the end in a, in a sort of interesting way, which I think makes it, a, it makes it a great, great book. I also, by the way, like uh, War and Peace, which everybody denigrates because it's so long, but actually it's very well written and it's quite readable um, if, if you ever want something to, to read over the summer. Perfect. Uh, th thank you very much, uh, David, for, for your time. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you. thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time.
The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.